0: In prayer as we begin, Lord, it is not about us, it is all about you. Who you are, what you have done, your holiness, your love, your grace your mercy, your righteousness. And yet you call us to participate in a way that is beyond our imagining. For you can do it all and only you accomplish. But you desire to have us serve you in the process. And thus we are to live holy lives which in ourselves we are completely incapable of, but in you we can. If we have been inspired, if we have been encouraged by our visitors this morning, for they surely live out what they believe, may we each consider how we too must do the same. Speak to us now through your word. To this end, we pray in Christ. Amen. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, or we might translate, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. As our country becomes more divided, it becomes more and more challenging to be at peace with all men lawsuits, divorce, protests, riots, racism, terrorism, prejudice, the list could go on. To be at peace with all is even challenging within families, within churches, within schools, within businesses. The worldly system that we live in lures us into conformity with its patterns, with its priorities, indulgence, accumulation of things, personal gratification, sinful pleasures. God says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12 and verse 2. If we live like the world... Even we who know Christ will tend to pursue godliness or holiness by identifying specific things or specific activities and then creating rules about them. In many cases, beyond the clear indication of God's word. Chuck Swindoll, who I have enjoyed his ministry through most of my Christian life, identified things that were considered unspiritual when he was young. Card playing, dancing, billiards, watching movies, eating at a restaurant or going to a beach on Sundays. Women wearing makeup. Women wearing too much makeup. Women wearing pants or cutting their hair short. The consumption of alcohol. I like this one. Drinking from a pop can, which made it look like one was drinking beer. (laughs) Lots of extra biblical specifics in order to sincerely, the desire was, to remain holy. But worldliness, the opposite of godliness, is not fundamentally a matter of certain external actions or things indulged in not fundamentally, to treat it that way leads to our trying to do our best to avoid worldliness by observing certain rules and behavior which become, in many cases, legalistic. This is exactly where Pharisaical Judaism went wrong. Worldliness, at root, is a mentality placing the things of the world above the things of Christ. So avoiding worldliness and practicing godliness or practicing holiness is a matter at root of spiritual transformation and ongoing mind and heart renewal. Godliness is certainly exhibited in external actions and behaviors consistent with the clear teaching of God's Word, with the clear standards and principles in God's Word. But godliness at root is attitudinal, internal, a matter of inward spirituality lived out. Sanctification of heart and mind, resulting in moral separation from the world, not physical outward separation, which so often, so easily, again, becomes legalistic. There are rules, there are commands that God expects us to to obey. But our second verse this morning, always with grace. When we fail to model grace, when we fail to encourage grace, when we fail to believe, if you will, in grace, when we fail to live with grace, When we fail to share grace with others, we become ungodly and worldly. And then our obedience to God's commands becomes external only and heartless and legalistic. So what I want us to do is consider an example of true godliness, of true holiness lived out in the most challenging and awful circumstances because I think it may help us to understand what our text this morning is getting at. April 20th, 1999, some of you may not have been alive or even old enough to be all that aware. Some of you were old enough and remember this but may not know the full story. Columbine High School, Littleton, Colorado. Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. These two young men killed 13 people, wounded 20 and then turned their weapons on themselves, committing suicide. Of the 13 dead, none touched the lives of others so much as one in particular, a young 17-year-old girl named Cassie Bernal. Rightly described, as a martyr. She died explicitly, openly, for her Christian faith. Her life was taken in the high school library when one of the murderers put an automatic rifle to her head and asked, do you believe in God? And Cassie paused and thought. and then loudly and clearly said yes. He pulled the trigger and Cassie entered her eternal reward with the God that she acknowledged in the face of death. Cassie Bernal became famous for dying for Christ. What is less well known is that in the months prior to her death, she had been actively living for Christ. Indeed, two years before that terrible incident in Littleton, Colorado, Cassie had been very much like Dylan and Eric. She was an angry youth, caught up in the teen underworld of Gothic darkness, with his trappings of disturbed music, wild rage, and flirtation with suicide. She and a friend were plotting the murder of one of the teachers that they had, whom they both despised. She wrote letters seriously discussing the idea of killing her own parents. When these letters were found, Cassie's parents sent her to a nearby church's youth group where she stuck out among the Christian kids there, both in her attire and in her demeanor. She attended most unwillingly. And yet a surprising thing happened. She made a Christian friend there and subsequently, dramatically, converted to Christ at a youth retreat. God brought his gospel of love and forgiveness and power for living into this young girl's heart. And Cassie went home after the retreat and announced, Mom, I've changed. After two years of living for Jesus, this young woman was willing to submit herself and die for Jesus. Her mother wrote later, the real issue raised by Cassie's death is not what she said to her killers, but what it was that enabled her to face them as she did. Cassie didn't just die on April 20th, she died daily over the previous two years. By faith, she had been giving her life over to Christ, and this is how she was able to face death on his behalf. Our passage in Hebrews today is about standing firm when the day of testing comes. Perhaps it will come for some of us as suddenly as it came for Cassie. Verse 4 of the same chapter told readers that they had not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood implying that they might soon face the same sort of trial. We've heard about the race that we are to run, shedding every encumbrance and sin that we might endure to the end, with our eyes fixed always on Jesus. Last week, we considered God's discipline as he trains us for a harvest of righteousness. Now we are told to pursue peace with everyone and to pursue holiness, that sanctification, peace with people, and holiness before God. It must be a sustained, it must be for all of us a determined pursuit. Peace in context here means that we are to seek that the peace of the gospel be imparted to all those around us, transmitted through the very way in which we live our lives. As Psalm 34, verse 14 says, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The Chinese evangelist, Watchman Nee, told a story illustrating our calling to peace. It's a story that I've shared, but it's been a long time. So I'll share it again. There was a Christian... Chinese Christian who had a rice field on a hill that had to be fed with water that he had to pump by hand to bring the water up from an irrigation stream at the bottom of the hill. But lower on the same hill to this particular rice farmer was another farmer, a neighbor of his, who would go out and cut a hole in a dividing wall between their properties so that when this rice farmer pumped water up, it drained into his neighbor's fields. Angered by this theft, and this guy would would repair the hole, and this guy would recut the hole, and he'd repair angered by the ongoing theft, this Christian farmer consulted his friends and told them he felt that it was right for him to take some sort of action against their thief, and he wanted their Counselor wisdom as to what action to take. They prayed together and one of these friends made the point that surely in the living of our lives we should seek for something far more than justice for ourselves. We ought to live in such a way as to be a blessing to others, as to pursue peace with others. As a result, this Christian rice farmer changed his strategy. He repaired the hole, but when he started pumping water the next day, he pumped water into his neighbor's fields. And when that was completed, he pumped water into his own. And he did that day after day ongoing. And finally, well, it didn't take very long, for this thief of a neighbor to come to him and ask him why he would act this way. We are to put peace with others ahead of our own rights and our own prerogatives. The Apostle Peter said it this way. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and 23. In our walk of sanctification, in our growth, it's a growth process of holiness, we are increasingly freed from sin and transformed into godliness. God is at work in us as we are to be active by faith in him. We're set apart from the sins of the world. We're set apart to God and to God's pleasure and service in our lives. This is not optional for us. This is something that we are all to engage actively. Not just hear about. Not just rejoice in how it's going in others' lives. But all of us to engage actively. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now we, of course, are not saved by holy living. Our salvation, rather, necessitates Holy living, which is God's very purpose in saving us. That we might be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8 verse 29. Holiness is not a condition of acceptance with God. Since we are justified by faith in Christ alone. But holiness is a necessary consequence of your acceptance With God. For as the Apostle James taught us, the idea of being saved by faith, a faith that does not produce good works, is no true faith. Faith, James wrote, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Chapter 2 in his letter, verse 17. True Christianity is personal relationship with Christ. Where in his spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwells the believer, giving to each of us a new nature, creating love for God, genuine love for God where it did not exist before, and genuine desire to serve God, to obey God. And further, the Holy Spirit provides the very power to do what it is that God wants us to do, what God requires So the gospel leads to an internal transformation where we become a blessing to the world and a source of peace for all those around us. But never by compromising with the world or by becoming worldly. We do the most good for the world when we are the least like the world. When we are godly we bring his light into the dark realm of evil. For Cassie Bernal, that meant learning to think differently than the world. That was the way she had thought most of her life. For two years, she learned enormously to think differently than the world. No longer thinking of herself in terms of popularity or image, or putting herself first and against others, she came to see that what God was calling her was to live out his love in her life and through her life toward others. She realized that she always needed to think about how God would have her to act in every circumstance. And she needed to be willing to go out of her way for the sake of others. Pursue peace with everyone and be sanctified or holy. And as we live this way, we are to see to it that no one comes short of grace, verse 15. We are to do, in other words, all that we can to ensure that others in the race with us don't fall behind or drop out. Warnings about falling away have been emphasized throughout the letter to the Hebrews. So it's pretty simple. What we're being told here is care for each other. Notice those who stumble. Notice those who seem to fall behind. Ask them about their struggle. Encourage them. Help them. In whatever way you can. And also in verse 15. Be aware of any root of bitterness springing up and causing trouble and spreading defilement. This is an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 18. Where Moses said to take care that there not be any among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. The danger was a group. The danger would be a faction in the body arising and promoting unbiblical teaching and unbiblical practices. Such a root is not merely bitter because it tastes bad, It's a deadly poison that brings about spiritual death. So care for the stumbling and allow no false teaching to take hold. Guard the gospel. Rightly divide the word. Be sure the teaching ministry of the church remains sound. Verse 16, then, brings a warning against sensual and godless patterns that lead people to turn away from eternal things to worldly things. See to it that no immoral or godless, that is, unholy person like Esau, the example that he selects, having a profane attitude about life which is sensual and earthbound or that which pursues sinful cravings of all sorts, that's what he means. Whether those sinful cravings are sexual or of any nature, rather than having those things which pursue spiritual things, spiritual blessings, spiritual good. This sort of attitude, of course, is all around us today, even in churches. Indeed, our nation's structure is practically built upon the twin pillars of worldliness, the sensual and the godless. The life of Esau, that's the other son of Isaac, the older brother of Jacob, is an example of this mindset. And it's a good warning against it. Esau was, we might say, sensually oriented, which is why he took pagan wives and grieved his godly parents. But the grossest example of his sensuality came with his willingness to trade his birthright, the covenant of salvation with the Lord, for a bowl of stew. He sold his own birthright for a single meal, which was a dreadful act of folly, recorded in Genesis chapter 25. Genesis says that Esau despised his birthright, despised this covenant relationship that God had established. Surely the height of disdain of the things of God, and yet a choice that is repeated every hour by hour over time. Our job is to make sure that this secular attitude finds no place in God's church and that every believer is warned against it. Hebrews 12 and verse 17 tells us why Esau's sensual frame of mind is so greatly to be avoided. Look again. Afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought it with tears. This refers to Esau's predicament when years later, the covenant blessing he had despised was actually given to Jacob instead of him. Genesis 27 records that Esau then regretted having given away something so valuable. But he wasn't sorry for his sin or for his depraved attitude, but only for the consequence that came about as a result. Thus, he was not able to undo what he had done, and in the same way, people with a sensuous and godless attitude today are unable to undo their many and foolish godless choices, however many tears they may shed. How many people even blame God for not helping them when they first rejected him in favor of the world? a world that turns out not to live up to its many and glittering promises. So see to it, we are commanded, that this attitude, that this terrible toll of tears does not find a foothold in our Christian community. Sadly, Esau only mourned the loss of benefit. He didn't mourn the sin that produced the loss of benefit. It's one thing to regret our sins. It's an entirely different thing to hate our sin and to repent of it. Esau valued temporary, fleeting lusts of the flesh rather than the enduring spiritual blessings of God's covenant. He lived by sight rather than by faith. He lived for today rather than for eternity. He lived for this world rather than for the next. He came home one day so hungry that he traded the blessing of his birthright as the firstborn son of Isaac for a bowl of stew. We are to live just the opposite. The application for us, don't turn from godliness and our spiritual inheritance for the paltry, the insignificant, the temporary gains of the world. So there are real dangers facing us today, as there were when Hebrews was written. First, the general concern for those who seem to fall away or fall back, and who seem to be headed to coming up short of the grace of God. Second, the threat of heresy within the church. Third, the danger of sensual godlessness a threat that we must always take seriously, especially with those who are young or young in the faith. And they are prone to being easily influenced by earthly values. But now I want to go back and look at the statement we find in verse 14, which I think dominates our text. We are to pursue the sanctification or the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So let's be very clear once again what this means. Because it's caused lots of Christians to lose sleep, having misunderstood it. Many have thought this means that being saved and going to heaven hangs on our moral attainment or our level of holiness, or holy living. To make that inference here, of course, runs counter and contrary to a whole host of scripture, which very clearly teaches that no one is saved, no one gets saved by means of his or her own holy living. We are not saved by our works, which if done in order to gain salvation, well, that's wholly inadequate because they are all tainted with sin and unacceptable by God if that's the way in which we see ourselves becoming Christian. We are saved only by the perfect work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, on the cross and in rising from the dead. The great message of the entire letter to the Hebrews is that Christ has made perfect what must be presented to God. He achieved the righteousness that God demands, a righteousness that we could not achieve, that only he could achieve, having led a sinless life and offering himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, offered up to God on our behalf to all those who come to him by faith. We read earlier in Hebrews, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 7 verse 26 and 27. What is more, Jesus raised from the dead to show that God had accepted his atonement For sin, and he now lives and reigns in heaven to ensure our endurance, to ensure our perseverance in the faith. Backing up a few verses in Hebrews seven, verse twenty-four and twenty-five, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Therefore, the point in Hebrews 12 and verse 14. The point is not that you must be saved by your own sanctification or holiness, a teaching which would only drive anyone to despair, if they're honest, just as it drove Martin Luther to despair before he more properly understood the meaning of God's word. And yet the point of Hebrews 12 and verse 14 14 is nevertheless quite direct and quite serious. It is about the necessity of sanctification, the necessity of holiness for all who call themselves Christians and who would be saved. What it says is true without sanctification, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Jesus made the same point in positive terms in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, verse 8. In heaven, we who believe will see God. We will have communion. We will have fellowship. We will have direct relationship with him in all fullness. That will happen by virtue of our active participation in his holy character. The Apostle John writes about this in intimating, as he writes, that the mere seeing of Christ in death will finally eradicate any vestige of sin from us. John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and has not yet appears as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. 1 John 3 and verse 2. Having begun our sanctification, our holiness in this life, we will enjoy its perfection in the life to come. And we will see our Lord then in the beauty, the absolute beauty of his holiness. That being the case, there are, I think, three ways that Hebrews 12 and verse 14 exhorts us to a present pursuit of that holiness, which alone enables us to see God face to face. First, we are exhorted to holiness because holiness is our proper preparation for heaven. The only ones who will be perfected in holiness then, then, are those who are being perfected in the sanctification process now. However slowly, with however much difficulty. So we're called to obedience and holy living, holy lives now. Think of what J.C. Ryle said. We must be holy. Because without holiness on earth, We shall never be prepared to enjoy heaven. Heaven is a holy place. Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself? And by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures their tastes not your tastes their character not your character how could you possibly be happy if you had not been holy on earth so how better then to prepare for the eternal blessing of holiness forever in the new heavens and the new earth than to seek holiness in our lives now then second. We must persevere in our faith if we want to be saved. And that perseverance is not without holiness. Thus we are to throw off every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us. Hebrews 12 verse 1. If we do not strive against sin, we will be overcome and we will not finish the race sin is a current that literally drags us out if you will to see our hearts are hardened by sin's deceitfulness so we must obey hebrews 12 and verse 14 making every effort to pursue peace and to be holy by god's grace and through the power of his spirit To go instead the way of Esau adopting a sensual and secular mindset leads only to despising the Lord, to despising the Lord's blessings. Those who shun holiness because they love this world will not see heaven. Then third, we must press on in holiness Because our present actions have eternal implications. This too is the lesson of Esau. His careless actions led to ultimate alienation from the eternal riches of God. On the one hand, we can repent of our sins and nail our fallen attitudes to the cross by faith in Christ. Cassie Bernal once offered her soul to Satan in earnest, and yet she finished her life professing faith to God to a gun wielding killer. The point is not that sin cannot be repented of, cannot be for- forgiven, because sin can be repented of, <coughs> excuse me, and forgiven. The point is that we must pursue holiness because what we do and what we think and what we say now matters eternally. The one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Galatians 6 verse 8. Perhaps you've heard it put this way. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. That is the epitaph On many, a formerly ruined soul. And we must make every effort, all in God's power, all in God's grace, received through faith in Christ, we must make every effort to advance in holiness a holiness without which we will not see our Lord. That's something that Cassie Bernal obviously came to realize. That's the epitaph on her life, and it's the title Of the book that her mother wrote to tell her story, titled She Said Yes. And in that book, her youth pastor wrote the following The world looks at Cassie's yes of April 20th, but we need to look at the daily yes, she said, day after day and month after month. Cassie would surely have agreed because shortly before her death she underlined a sentence in a book that she was reading. That sentence said, all of us should live life so as to be able to face eternity at any time. Friends, that's the message for each of us. Not only because, like her, we may face death at any moment, but because this is what lies ahead for all who are in Christ. The life in store for us is a holy life. Therefore, let us make every effort to be holy, for it is with holiness that someday we will see our beloved Lord. And it is with holiness that others can see our Lord in us. Let's pray. On the basis of your saving us, on the basis of your grace to us, on the basis of your power in us, help us, encourage us, move us to live holy lives, to honor you, to glorify you, to draw others to you, to see you, we pray, in Christ. Amen. Rise, if you will, for the benediction. It quite clearly is not enough that we believe it. It's not enough that we affirm it. We are to live it. That's where the rubber meets the road. May your rubber meet that road every moment of every day for Jesus to in his peace. Amen.